Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for February 17th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Mr. Evan Kelly, what what are we doing here? Well, it may be tough to remember because we've been off, but what we're doing here is bringing ideas into the forefront through good faith, conversation, and discussion. We're going to entertain ideas from wherever they may come from and try to keep you all adequately informed. Yeah, if I can remember correctly, I think we're not perfect. I think that was like one of our tenements. Seems, um, seems, seems familiar. Apostate 2, we are not on the ivory tower. Uh, Theorem 3, uh, I didn't know where I was going with that, but we're not perfect. We're probably going to be wrong. We're probably going to be wrong a lot, but we like to think we're right. I don't know. We're human. We're infallible. Nope, we're fallible. Um, <laughs> so with that in mind, Evan, what, what's the game plan for today? Well, since we have been off today, we're going to try to catch up on some of the big stories that have happened over the past couple of weeks, and there have been many. Yeah, while we uh, we didn't have a podcast last week, it's been two weeks since we've recorded. So, I'll, if you've been paying attention, a lot sure has happened. The, the world has gone you know, was set ablaze. And then now today it seems relatively calm. Relatively. Not in Australia, Joe, not in Australia. I thought they had a, I thought they had a rain and it all got settled. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Good old rain. But where are we going to start off today, Evan? Well, I want to catch us up on a couple of the bigger sporting events that have happened. Uh, chief among them is the Super Bowl. And I used the word chief on purpose because the Kansas City Chiefs were the Super Bowl champions. San Francisco led most of the game, but could not hold it in the fourth quarter. Another big collapse for a Kyle Shanahan squad, this time with him as the head coach, as opposed to the offensive coordinator for the Falcons when they lost the infamous 28-3 game in the Super Bowl. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, I guess, played an outstanding game. I actually didn't get to watch the Super Bowl, which is weird for how much football I watch, but I was out of town and driving and missed the entire game. But I was told it was a good game, and, uh, you know, the the Niners pass, pass rush just got tired, and congratulations to all of the Kansas City Chiefs except Tyreek Hill. I thought the Super Bowl halftime show was decent. Not the best. <laughs> But it was decent. Did you watch? I mean, I watched it after the fact. Well, go uh, ahead. What's your What's your review of the halftime show? I to this day uh, still haven't seen it. I'll give it like a, I'll give it like an eighty five percent. Had good energy. Solid. Had good uh, choreography. There was a little bit that could have been done with like the face hit or the the pacing and the kind of general effect. I kind of want to do a project that kind of dissects. Uh, Super Bowl halftime shows and the whole concept of a halftime show in general from band to drum corps to Super Bowl but that may just be a future project in my tank but now that I say it out loud to an audience I guess it may have to happen so yeah there's uh, a little more accountability Uh, but just for those who maybe aren't aware it was uh, Jennifer Lopez and Shakira right 
Yeah, do you know which performers? one? Do you know which one was supposed to be like the main guest, or were they like just co-equals? I, I really I, don't know. I, I didn't because follow. I could because I really couldn't tell from the the performance. <laughs> they they seem to share the you know the whole thing. It's not like uh, in Katy Perry's where it was like, oh, we got oh, what's her name now, Missy Elliott. You know, there would never be a question. Oh, it was was it Katy Perry's or Missy Elliott's show? It was Katy Perry's, but Missy Elliott was a guest or a guest. So. Uh, with this one, I think it was pretty good. Uh, not the uh, not the best of the best, but still a better effort than last year's. Okay, so I rarely watch the halftime show, even if I do watch the game. What's what's the best of the best? What's your favorite Ooh, Super Bowl Katie halftime Perry's. show? Katy Perry's. It's uh, what was what was attempted was a high bar. It was executed. It had great pacing. It you know had a flow to it. I feel I feel like so many Super Bowl halftime shows they're just kind of like ah here's our best songs let's go. Um, but there is a craft to it, and maybe someday I'll better explore that. So what what was the concept? I I've never seen it. I'm not even familiar with it. The concept? Well, like I mean Katy Perry one. Like what what makes it special? Like what what were they well, going for that was well, executed well? Well, it's just like each song there, like she starts off with uh, her song Roar, you know, it's like, and she's writing on the back of this big old tiger that's like 30 feet tall. And then she gets off and then, you know, she's on this uh, virtual reality projected stage and there's choreography. And then all of a sudden she does like a costume change and then uh, she's doing California Girls and then you know then there's like this whole missy elliott section and then she kissed a girl and then and then all of a sudden at the end she's uh flying on a fucking cloud through the stadium like there there was it was very well executed uh the attempt was big and it was executed um because you know with any super bowl halftime show it's mostly you know the artist or band or whatever yeah, they're mostly coming out and just kind of doing their greatest hits because that's what everybody mm-hmm. wants to hear. But how you do that and how you string those together and, you know, whether you have guests uh, or, you know, guest performers or, uh, you know, what kind of stunts you do along with that, that can change the game because, you know, the kind of era of just having the band go up there and play a couple songs is over. You got to do something more than that. And, uh, yeah, Katy Perry set the bar. Cool. Yeah. So then uh, the other big Super Bowl thing is commercials, but neither of us watched it live, so... I have, do, Yeah, do you, I have nothing to say. <laughs> you, you don't have a take on Super Bowl commercials? I mean, they either land or they don't. And I didn't watch any, so I can't adequately convey if they landed or didn't so okay so the other big news then in the sporting world has been the continued development of the houston astros sign stealing scandal a couple days ago the owner of the astros um had a press conference where he allowed his players to apologize but it wasn't really an apology and then 
uh, encourage everyone to move on. And it seemed like this press conference was kind of the last straw for a lot of people because the MLB fraternity has turned on the Astros. Typically, people have been pretty mum, but now players are openly criticizing the Astros, calling their World Series victory illegitimate. Cody Bellinger of the Dodgers called their World Series victory illegitimate and also questioned the legitimacy of Jose Altuve's 2017 American League MVP award. Um, Trevor Bauer has been openly critical. Uh, Chris Bryant, Whit Merrifield. It, it just seems like the floodgates are open now to criticize the Astros. And I think it's fair to say that the 2017 World Championship is illegitimate because the players on the Astros tried to emphasize how good that team was. But if your team was really that good, why would you need to cheat? And it's kind of gone beyond just words at this point, because actually, former Toronto's Blue Jay pitcher Mike Bolsinger has launched a lawsuit in California against the Astros. Essentially, in 2017, Bolsinger was a pitcher for the Blue Jays, and he pitched a game in 2017 against the Astros, and he got absolutely lit up. They clobbered him, scored a lot of runs off of him, and then the next day he was cut and has not reappeared in Major League Baseball games since. So his lawsuit alleges that because they implemented their scheme, which is forbidden by MLB rules, and it affected his performance in a way that cost him his job, that they're financially liable for lost earnings. Hmm. Interesting lawsuit. Yeah, I've I've kind of read a brief non-legal analysis analysis of how the the case probably won't make it very far, but I'm interested to see how this gets litigated and we'll see if it winds up seeing a courtroom. Either way, um the PR nightmare is not over for Houston. Well, now I'm just thinking about that lawsuit because, yeah, I mean, it did damage his, I mean, can you sue for psychological damage? Well, I think that it's not, it's not psychological damage. It's he, you know, baseball is a sport. Well, lost earnings from psychological damage. Wasn't that what it was that he lost his like funk and wasn't able to do it anymore? No, that... Basically, um, to be fair, this guy was already sort of a marginal pitcher anyway, and when he performed so badly against the Astros, that was sort of like the last straw, and based on the weakness of that final performance, he was unable to ever secure another, uh, another MLB job. Okay, I was getting that confused with something else then. Yeah, well, we've talked about Hugh Darvish before, and he has certainly had his difficulties, but yeah, Bolsinger is a different guy in a different uh, case entirely. Yeah, that's... Hmm, that is an interesting case. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it would shake out, and I, of course, have no clue about the California statutes based, you know, that would be relevant on that. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so um, just wanted to take one more opportunity to say how disgusting the Houston Astros are and how hypocritical the Major League Baseball Commissioner's Office handling of the situation has been. 
And I think that catches us up on sports. Sports. So what else we got, Joe? Oh, well, funny you ask me because we're going to go with the Oscars, which is your thing. So, yeah. Yeah. What what happened with that? Yeah. Got to talk about the Oscars because it was a night that didn't really feature too many big surprises with one huge exception. So all of the expected acting winners won. Screenplay was pretty well determined. But then I thought that the big winner of the night was going to be 1917. It had won at the Directors Guild Awards, Producers Guild Awards, Golden Globes, and BAFTAs. And then it got upset in Best Director and Best Picture by a little film from South Korea called Parasite. And in doing so, Parasite became the first ever foreign language picture to win the top award in the Academy's 92-year history. Nice. It's it's a great film, um, and I think that in a preferential ballot, there was nobody who would put Parasite below second or third out of the nominees. Hmm. I think if you guys recall, when we did the If I Picked the Winners segment, my favorite film of the nominated Best Picture winners was... Marriage Story, and then I think 1917 would have been a close two, and then even still, though, Parasite would have been my third, and so that's the thing. You have some of the other frontrunners were more polarizing, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Joker, where a lot of people would like them and rank them very highly, but another huge group of the Academy of Voters probably ranked them very low, and on a preferential ballot, it's really valuable to have a broad base of top-tier support as opposed to a more polarizing type of reaction. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So the voting system came through and was just. Or- yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of, it's annoying to me because I remember the Oscar voting and, and sort of the, a lot of the people who follow the Oscars, I think just are always shocked that the Academy doesn't pick the movies that they like. And it's it shouldn't be shocking if you've followed it at all for any length of time. It's also like and, the same thing in podcasts or not podcasts, politics, where someone's like, ah, what this person needs to do to win is go to my exact policy positions and then they'll yeah. win. <laughs> well, I'll just never forget in 2016. Well, I guess it was 2017, but for the films of 2016, when it seemed like La La Land was going to win Best Picture, I read this really eviscerating think piece saying how dumb the Oscar voting was. And then when Moonlight ended up pulling out the upset victory, that sector of Oscar fandom went silent. It was, you know, the the voting was no longer stupid when the movie that they favored benefited from it. So (laughs) (laughs) the Oscars are what they are. Sometimes they pick great films. Sometimes they pick Green Book appreciate the Oscars for what it is a chance to celebrate movies in general and if a great film that you love like Parasite happens to win it's awesome and it was a cool experience and I know a lot of people were very happy but also remember that the Academy didn't fundamentally change it's the same the same group of people who gave Parasite Best Picture are still the same group of people who only nominated one performer of color in the acting categories and really struggles with diversity and representation 
in almost every branch. So take it for what it is. That that comment on the fandom reminds me of, you know, like uh, the conservative media out there likes to lambast the New York Times all the time for being this crazy liberal institution that, you know, is anathema to conservative causes. And then as soon as they post one thing that falls in line with their worldview, they're like, yeah, check it out. It's on the New York Times. They said it. (laughs) Paper of record. Check it out. Yeah, they criticize it until it agrees with them. And then once again, it's the vanguard of all things true and logical. Oh, yeah. That, you know, we read the New York Times for a reason. They know things. But they're also liberal hacks. Yeah. Yeah, the Academy is bad and the Academy is good. (laughs) The Academy is. And uh we'll look forward to it again as i always do actually i got to see parasite again because it's been getting sort of a bigger release again with its oscar success so i got to see it again and it was awesome and it was a great way to sort of put 2019's year in cinema to bed and we'll have can coming up in a couple of months and we'll get a new batch of awesome movies to to discuss and wait for and be disappointed when they don't get u.s distribution Man, there's going to be movies again this year? <laughs> I know, they don't stop. Jeez. I thought they stopped that back in 2012. <laughs> Cinema ended after 2010's Inception. That was the last movie that was made. Yeah. Yeah, that's, they realized <laughs> that's all they needed. Um, they had done it. They did it. They did Cinema. <laughs> It had been perfected, and everyone gave up. And and everybody clapped. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. so so that's movies. Now, now we 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 get to the juicy, don't we? Don't we, Evan? We the, get the, we get to the real big, the big big, the the political stories of. The last two weeks, which boy, everything happened. Um, Yeah. So what was it? The week of the third. So the day our podcast came out, there was the Iowa caucus. There was like the Trump acquittal. There was the the State of the Union address. Everything happened. Every everything. So so let me see. What are we going with? We're starting with the acquittal. I yep. guess. Yep. Impeachment coming first. Yeah. So the Senate finally held a vote to convict. Uh, they didn't. They didn't end up voting for the full suite of. Uh, oh, what is it? It's not interviews or. The new witnesses. The witnesses. Yeah, they didn't end up allowing more witnesses. Yeah, a couple of senators defected, but it still failed 51 to 49. So no new witnesses were called, and key players like John Bolton never testified in the Senate. Yep. And if we remember, you know, the big uh, criticism levied against Democrats is like, why didn't they have more witnesses? Or, you know, why didn't they in the House process, which... It's because the Trump administration through and through has denied, uh, 
you know, it's decided to not be cooperative with the in investigation. Um, they they basically blocked everyone who was relevant and still employed with them from testifying. Now, there is an argument that the Democrats could have gone further and taken this to the Supreme Court and did all that, but that, that would have drawn things out, and I don't know if it would have gotten anywhere, but... Uh, yeah, because um, so a, one, a key subpoena was blocked with a lawsuit, and so while that was being litigated, the Democrats sort of stopped issuing subpoenas in the House because it really didn't matter if they issued more subpoenas until they knew the result of that initial lawsuit. So it's tough to really blame the Democrats in the House for not issuing more subpoenas because they all would have ended the same way in these obstruction lawsuits and it wouldn't have actually accomplished anything. So I don't, I don't hold them. I don't hold it against the house yeah. managers. Yeah. And, and a lot of the, the defense was the big term being floated around here is executive privilege. But if executive privilege means no one in the administration can give one word of testimony, then that is a huge expansion from any previously held conceptualization of executive privilege yeah that that's basically the absolute monarch version of executive privilege he yeah is, it, the executive is deigned by god and they have no oversight i'm trying to think of hell i mean like when hillary clinton was getting ragged for benghazi she turned over all documents and did an eight hour uh, congressional hearing based on that. Now, is Hillary Clinton my favorite politician? No, but she at least went with it. Yeah, um, she she complied. Yeah, it was, no, it wasn't even it was like 13 hours that hearing went on or some shit like that. Just some ridiculous amount of questioning. Yeah, and to be honest, from my point of view, there was already enough that should have been enough to, you know, convict Trump, at least in my view. Yeah, this is like the most basic of impeachment trials with, you know, kind of the clearest case. A president using his power as the chief executive of the country to change or to use the influence of a foreign power to help change the uh, change the circumstances for an election coming up. And so let's yeah, let's unpack sort of the defense that was used because I think it's really dangerous the precedent that it sets by acquitting Trump using this legal defense. So Alan Dershowitz, one of his lawyers, essentially made the claim that the president can do whatever he wants in the national interest. And if he thinks his reelection is in the national interest, he can use any means necessary to make sure that happens. I, I think on face value, that's absurd. But let's unpack this a little bit more. If that's true, then there's really no limit to presidential power. If a president wants to take out a political rival, he can do so as long as he 
thinks it's in the national interest. If a president wants, to, if a president says, well, I'm doing a great job with the economy, why don't I just stick around for a third term, which Trump is already throwing out there. Oh, he says it all the time. Uh, yeah. And so according to Dershowitz, that's fine and constitutional as long as you can ostensibly say that it's in the national interest. And I watched one day of the full impeachment proceedings and just read updates from other days because I think that's all I could handle. And something that came into play was the idea of motives. And Trump's defense team kept saying, we can't try to make a claim based on subjective motives. If, if we can say that Trump's motive was to act in the national interest and not to help out himself, then that's good enough. But that doesn't make any sense either because motives are not subjective. The defense kept saying, well, these motives are subjective and we can't throw them out. But motives aren't subjective. Sometimes motives can be tough to determine or unknown to the people acting, but motives are not subjective. There's a reason why people do things. And so in a legal context, if you can, you have to be able to prove the motive. That's one of the three things you need to determine a crime, means, motive, and opportunity. Every criminal trial, if they followed this line of defense, the defense could just say, well, you'll never be able to tell the motive, and so therefore you have to let every criminal walk away. And that's obviously an absurd standard that's not followed in any courtroom. So for the defense team to say, well, motives are subjective, so you can't say that Trump was improperly abusing his power because we don't know his motives. It's absolute bullshit. There are ways to prove what someone's motives are, and I agree with Joe. I think that the House team was able to effectively demonstrate that. I mean, the core of where this begins is, you know, somehow Trump caring about the corruption that may ensue from Hunter Biden being given a position at a, a comfy position at a company that it the sole reason he gets that position is because his father is Joe Biden. Whether or not anything else resulted of that, I mean, it shouldn't have been done, but, you know, if that's the core issue with that, then why is Jared and Ivanka still working at the White House? Yeah. Uh, it, the corruption is supposed to be not nepotism, but, you know, just uh, a family member of a top executive you know, using their closeness to the executive to exact riches and Jared and Ivanka ostensibly have no qualifying experience to be senior aides at the White House. And it's just maddening to me that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're somehow both running, working as members of the state and still running their businesses and profiting off of it. And it's just happening or Trump still, I mean, Trump still hasn't given up his businesses. It's, and then in the days after acquittal, uh, what was it? Trump fired all the officials that were testified against him and essentially admitted that he sent 
Rudy Giuliani over to Ukraine to find dirt on Joe Biden. And here's the other thing that I don't understand, and and Rudy Giuliani comes into play here, is that the Trump team was very clear that Rudy Giuliani was not acting in an official capacity of the state when he was over in Ukraine because that would require him to get congressional approval and different clearances that he didn't have. So they obviously didn't want to say that Giuliani was doing state business. So what else was his purpose there if not to act as a political agent for Trump? It was Rudy Giuliani who was putting the pressure on the Ukrainians to publicly announce the investigation of Hunter Biden, and the Trump team admitted that this was not a state matter. Which means that but it it's must in the interest of the political. state. Political. Ru- Rudy Giuliani <laughs> wasn't acting in the capacity of the state, but what he was doing was in the interest of the state. Uh, the mental gymnastics needed to make that argument. Yeah. Are incredible. I, and I find it just despicable. And so, obviously, in my amateur opinion, I didn't find the Trump defense compelling at all, but it never really mattered, right? The the the, the standard for conviction would have required such an overwhelming number of Republicans to jump ship that it was the, the outcome of the trial was really never in doubt. But I think something really important did come out of the vote. Joe, do you know what I'm going to say next? Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, indeed. On the first article of impeachment on the abuse of power charge, Mitt Romney voted along with every Democrat to convict. It still wasn't enough to even have a simple majority, let alone a two-thirds majority, but it's still a historic vote because Mitt Romney became the first ever senator to vote to convict a president of his own party. No president has ever lost the support of a member of his own party during impeachment. And for all of the complaints about this being a partisan hit job, that only Democrats were trying to get Trump, and that there was no legitimacy other than to overturn the election results, which is also a stupid argument. When it came right down to it... Four years (laughs) later... Four years later, the House Democrats want to make Hillary president. That would actually be overturning the election. Removing Trump and putting in Mike Pence would not be overturning the election. But when it came down to the final vote, Trump became the only president in history to face bipartisan report, bipartisan support for his conviction and removal, thereby making it, in my own definition, the least partisan impeachment of a president <laughs> in U.S. history. Yeah. And so, uh, Mitt Romney has faced some pretty big backlash for this. Um, oh, yeah. He was disinvited from CPAC, which is the big conservative convention held every year. He, he was invited because they were like, we cannot ensure his security. Like, what does that even mean? Very threatening. Um, and I would like to and apologize to Mitt Romney over the 2012 binders full of women fiasco. You know, 
you, we still got you on the 47% thing, but binders full of women, that was a bit unfair. I'll say that. No, it was fair. It was hilarious. No. I stand by it. No. He literally had binders full of women's resumes and all that that they were going to fill the administration with. <laughs> it was a poor turn of phrase, and it's funny, and I liked seeing him roasted for it, and that opinion hasn't changed. Anyway, though, um, I've seen what, what I think is kind of scary about the response to Mitt Romney is that the online conservative propaganda machine has turned against him. I've seen memes spread about how he the only reason he voted to convict Trump was because he's actually secretly in cahoots with Democrats because his children also serve on Ukrainian energy boards, which is blatantly false. It's just not true. Um, but that's that's the thing is it's just whoever disagrees with us clearly is corrupt. Anything that we're accused of doing, it's the people who are accusing us that are actually doing it. And so for, you know, in in interviews and stuff, it's it's pretty clear that I still think that as a politician, Mitt Romney is really wrong-headed on policy. I'm not all of a sudden soft on Mitt Romney. I, I you know, I really struggle to see a future in which I vote for him because of this for any reason. But you got to give credit where credit is due. The Democrats really didn't risk anything by voting to convict Trump. I'm glad they did. Yeah. But Mitt Romney has risked everything just to be able to say enough is enough. This yeah. isn't right and we need to do something about it. And I applaud him and I think it was a true act of patriotism for Mitt Romney to do this. And it has earned my respect. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a big deal, and I still I still just wonder what what would it take to impeach someone. And I think that's kind of what we're finding out is that there's nothing. Well, and it makes me think, you know, if if we can't impeach someone for this so basic, so egregious, maybe we need to. You know, I, I hate being the guy who's like every t single time I'm like, oh, we need to reform. But, you know, what kind of bigger picture can we think of to help remedy this situation? Because we ought, we can't have a system where the chief executive can just go gallivant and do whatever they want. And... You know, historically in the United States, we've had the system of norms where people, you know, presidents took their jobs very seriously and wanted to keep on with the tradition that has been set over the, you know, the course of the entire country's history. But what happens when you have someone who doesn't care about that history whatsoever? They can just kind of do whatever they want. I mean, that, that's like the biggest thing we've learned with Trump is that if you have no shame, nobody has any political power over you as long as, you know, the people you're serving or some cohort still believes in what you're doing. So yeah. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what kind of, ref, you know, 
the kind of what reforms can we do that isn't just throwing the entire thing out. Um, yeah, and I don't. I kind of don't know why you kind of treat reform like it's a, a dirty word. Almost, I, I think that this is well. It's not that it's a exposed. dirty word. Is because it, it's, it's like uh, there. There's a like Democrat or progressive reform plan for every facet of life, and I don't want to just. At some point, there are bad actors, and at some point, it's the system. And with this one, it's definitely the system. Yeah, and I, I think it's definitely exposed how this system can be easily manipulated. And so I do think that this is a clear case where reform is vitally necessary. Have you? I haven't, but have you come up with any ideas for what that reform would look like? Yeah, I mean, at least in the specific context of impeachment, I haven't been able to come up with anything. I mean, there could be some very trickle, tricky legal framework that could be provided where a sitting president could be charged in a criminal proceeding. But then as we're seeing now, William Barr is basically running the Justice Department as uh trump's you know defense you know he's playing interference against everything mm -hmm. which every you know trump deeply thought that eric holder did for obama's department <laughs> of justice which i don't even know what they would be running interference on um so you know obama's kids are on a ukraine board too that's what the meme says yeah but <laughs> It's just like, it just feels so weird because it's like Trump is doing everything that the Republican Party and conservatives accused Obama of doing and when he wasn't, and now Trump is actually doing it. And it's like a weird asymmetric boy who cries wolf. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like some boy in some town over cried wolf and then someone who has had, I mean, I'm not going to say perfect record, but someone who didn't cry wolf. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a fucking wolf. And then everyone's like, oh, <laughs> no, no, we get you in your wolf crying ways. Yeah, the entire defense is just it's so baffling to me because it's always some rotating combination of I didn't do it. The Democrats are the ones actually doing it. I did it, but I get to do it because there's nothing wrong with it. I'm the president and repeat. And it's, you, you just got to wonder if, if there is an end point to it, I guess it kind of comes with the individual, Mitt Romney had enough of it, but what, yeah. is, what does it say about our system where this can happen just because a couple of people in a couple of states are okay with low corporate taxes and don't want to see that end, you know? Lisa Murkowski got $20 million coming back to Alaska. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, but 
you know, our, our, our United States political system was structured in a way that was supposed to be a political system without parties. Mm-hmm. And, you know, over the course of, you know, through polarization and through everything else where we have a country that, you know, where everything is strictly based on political parties, but the structure isn't set up for it. So we just come to these points where partisanship can rule. Like what are the Republicans incentives to vote against Trump? None. None. I mean, mean, look at Mitt Romney. You know, uh, there was a, you know, period when Trump was elected, there was a period of time where they were like, oh, you know, are they going to break with Trump or be a check on him? Because he, you know, doesn't seem to be following any of their policies. And then Trump, I mean, because it doesn't seem like he cares and all he wants to do is really the culture war stuff. They, you know, he just took up all the positions of the Republican Party. And because of that, people like Mitch McConnell are perfectly fine to do whatever Trump wants because Trump is basically a rubber stamp for whatever they want to do. Yeah. um, Basically, the original theory was that there wouldn't be political parties and instead the system would be ambition checking ambition. So under that framework, you know, Trump would be doing something, but in uh, a senator without a party would never stand for it because they would know that they could be challenged in their own state and lose. But now with the party system, we know that Mitch McConnell is safe in a Republican state and the Republican party isn't going to field any serious challenge against McConnell. So Mitch McConnell has no reason to check Trump's ambition. Yeah. And the entire system melts down a little bit. Or in the ultra original version, Hillary Clinton would have been vice president and would have had real uh, incentive to try and egg things on. She would be president of the Senate, get it, you know, running how the Senate works, um, be the decisive uh, last vote on anything that, go, you know, if something's tied in the Senate. So it's just our system isn't de- isn't designed for parties and, you know, are, uh, for a good amount of time in the country we were able to work without or work within the system because the two parties were pretty similar. Mm -hmm. And, but now that we're in an age of, I mean, this is what all of Ezra Klein's new book, why we are polarized is about, but this isn't that, that segment, but I am using some of the insights from that. And so in a age where party is supreme how do how do we make our politi- political system to work like right now the re- you know reason why everybody's upset at congress is because it seems like congress hasn't been able to do anything for the past i don't know when was the affordable care act passed like that however 2009 that, yeah yeah that long ago so over a decade and it's because 
nobody really has any incentive to do anything. You know, the only reason. So for like the front half of the 20th century, Republicans were the main party that ran everything and Democrats would work with them because they thought, well, you know, if we're going to Republicans reign supreme for the most part at running the country, if we're going to have that and we're not really going to win all that much, we might as well work with them. Then for the back half of the 20th century, it was flipped where the Democrats were the major party being in power. And so the Republicans were like, well, you know, we don't like it, but, you know, we're probably not going to get any power back. And then uh, we might as well work with the Democrats because then we can get something, some of our goals done. So what has happened in the 21st century is for the first time in American politics, each party is competitive. Like, so the presidency, you know, has kind of gone back and forth because, you know, the Electoral College and other powers that be. But it was in Ezra Klein's book where before I think it was like 1997, the New York Times in its entire history had run like I, I don't know the exact numbers, but it was single digits. So let's say like seven stories about the House flipping power or Congress flipping power between the parties. And then since 1997, there's been like 70 or more <laughs> because it's a constant thing where every two years it could be, uh, the other power party might get it. Um, so we're in an age when, so if one, if the minority party doesn't feel like they need to work, cooperate with the other power party because they're never going to get power back. If they could just hold out for another two years, they may get power and they may be in the majority and may be able to do what they actually want to do. So why, you know, compromise your positions now when maybe in two years, maybe four years, maybe six years, you can just do what you want. Yeah. So, um, so that all that is to say, I applaud Mitt Romney voting to impeach because he had no incentive to. And I mean, yeah, we could say, oh, the rule of law and all that stuff. But I mean, we're way past that. We're so far past that. Like if we had to, (laughs) if we're having this conversation, that conversation is already done with. Like if we were in the, oh, they should have voted it for because it's the rule of law. This would be the discussion we're having because 39 Republican senators didn't vote for Trump's impeachment and mm-hmm. or something like that. We're, we're so past that conversation. It's like the, you know, it's like the John Mulaney bit where it's like someone's like, maybe there shouldn't be a horse running around in the hospital. And it's like, oh, no, that conversation is long over. <laughs> So you kind of touched on it, but I do want to just sort of bring up again um, the fallout afterwards. Obviously, Mitt Romney has faced a lot of backlash, but other impeachment witnesses, too, have been retaliated against. Individuals who still have government posts have been fired, such as Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who was a big Trump uh, anti-Trump witness describing the phone call in which Trump established the quid pro quo 
with Ukraine with Ukraine. He has been removed from his post and everything that we were afraid of would happen if Trump was allowed to get off with impunity is happening. Yeah. Uh, Ambassador Gordon Sondland has been let go from his post, which Mm -hmm. is kind of funny because he paid, he got the post because he was a big donor to Trump's campaign. So he's had a turn of events and just seems to be an interesting man. So he can go back to managing his hotels. Yeah. It's just, it's been a wild ride, man. And it's, I, I am legitimately scared, uh, you know, if if in the the general election that happens in November, if Trump loses, like what what would happen? Like we were scared of what he, you know, when he if he were to lose in the 2016 election and now he actually has the power of state. It's just uh, it, I'm not not super optimistic that you know things are going to calm down (laughs) no i mean it's horrifying because he's got a subset of people who will uncritically believe everything he says and what he's telling them already is that the democrats before the election in 2016 he said well the democrats have already cheated so i'm already gonna lose and then when he won that didn't matter anymore um then he's saying now you know the democrats are cheating again I'm the legitimate president. I'm going to win again. And if I don't, it's because there's been interference by the Democrats. I deserve a third term. Really dangerous stuff that, as rhetoric, I guess, doesn't really matter. But it seems like there is a growing number of people who take it literally. And if taken literally, that is the type of mindset that causes violence and it is concerning i would love it if november comes and goes and i am revealed to be an alarmist i would be absolutely fine with that. that'd be great but best case scenario (laughs) i'm a hypocrite best case scenario (laughs) yes i am fine with that because it it's the kind of very grave situation that requires more dire thought. Yeah. And, I mean, just just even the fact that he regularly muses that he should be given three terms because the first one was in controversy or the Democrats took it away from him. Just the fact that he regularly muses about that. Like, Obama was criticized because, you know, I think he may have mused once that if he could have, he would have won a third term. Like, once (laughs) mused. Didn't say he was going to run, didn't say he should get one, but mused that he would maybe win. So this is where you edit in the clip of uh, Bradley Whitford in Get Out saying, I'd have voted for Obama a third time if I could. (laughs) Oh, Bradley Whitford. As soon as the West Wing was does he done, he was like, "Fuck it, I'm letting my hair go gray." I'm let, he really did. Like he went yeah. <laughs> from young man to old man fast. Yeah, no transition period. No transition lenses. So, since mentioning transitions, we'll take a quick break here to play the main segment music. 
Alrighty, Evan. It's time to main segment it up. Which... Oh, yeah. So, I hear some primaries have been happening. Or caucuses. Yeah. Since last we spoke, we've experienced the Iowa caucus as well as the New Hampshire primary. So, let's dig in. Did any, of our, did any of our faux predictions come true? Um, oh gosh, what were they? One of them was like, hey, can you believe Joe Biden said that thing? And he's noticeably not been saying things. So, uh, did, we, did we end the Joe Biden saying things era? Maybe. I mean, maybe because he's uh, not perceived as the outright front runner, then maybe people are chilling. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, so Iowa was a gigantic clusterfuck. They were relying on a newly developed app to report the caucus results, but the app crashed. And also, for some reason, the phone lines that they could call in for a backup reporting method were jammed. And so no results of the Iowa caucus could be reported for hours after the caucus and confirmation of results took days which absolutely threw the party into disarray Mm -hmm. yeah that is big yeah the the more i team i pay attention to politics the more there are a few truths to voting make voting as low tech as possible Make sure there's a paper trail, which was part of why all this happened was uh, last last Democratic primary. There was controversy because uh, there was some disagreement that at some caucuses they went to Hillary Clinton. But people on the ground said that there were more Sanders supporters and they wanted to. This is why they listed out three different sets of results. Because that's, you know, they wanted to make sure that all the information was out there, but it just makes things more confusing. And the whole thing is confusing. Um, Mm -hmm. But, and use paper, use just some plain ass reporting methods. It, It works before you don't need to streamline it. Just, just do the, just do the stupid. Just do Yeah, I mean, there's a strong case to be made for that, especially now. When the dust settles, when the dust had settled, uh, again, as Joe mentioned, Iowa gets pretty convoluted, but it turned out that in terms of the popular vote, Bernie Sanders pulled the most support, but based on their caucus system, what matters is the state delegate equivalents And that lead narrowly went to Pete Buttigieg. And so Pete Buttigieg was able to claim more overall delegates to the national convention. And Pete Buttigieg did, by that standard, win Iowa. Mm -hmm. Yep. So So again, you know, uh, (laughs) it's it's the same old story uh, where the person who got the most support didn't actually win, which is pretty weird. Maybe uh, my pre-Iowa uh, caucus bantering that maybe caucuses were good um, did not fan out. <laughs> no, they didn't. 
basically, my thoughts on caucuses is that I think a party should really be able to choose who they want. So, uh, you know, if if we're truly doing the system where the you know it's supposed to be deciding who the candidate is for a party, then I do think it should probably be more people who are uh, more fervent political supporters who decided and not the general populace at a, as a whole. I mean, that's for the general election. Um, but uh, this this was bungled, bungled bad. So, mm-hmm. um, also been thinking um, a lot about so, so. primaries. <laughs> what about primaries? Oh, the way we're doing it in the United States is a mess for both parties. Um, we've gotten to this Go point. On. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. So basically in any other democracy, the way that one, the primary system is baked into like the federal law. It's not up to the uh, parties to decide or, you know, some weird mishmash of state systems and local systems and this and that. There is a unified system for primarying or it's just that party, you know, the party machine decides who their candidate is. There isn't a system like this in the United, where what we have in the United States, where there's kind of a mishmash of like, it always seemed weird to me in the United States that really anybody can declare to be running in an election for any party. Like, mm-hmm. you know, even though I'm liberal, I could go to the county board and register as a Republican. And if I get enough signatures to run in the election, I can technically run as a Republican. I won't get any endorsement from the party. I won't get any money from them. I won't get any support, but I could still be on the ballot as Joe Hicks Republican on -hmm. an election. So, and then same goes for the voting. It doesn't matter if you're actually a member of the party. You, like most states, you can just show up and ask for either the Democratic ballot or the Republican ballot. And then they'll just give you either one and you vote on that. So, it, you know, if you're, uh, you know, let's say, you know, let's say years ago, um, you're a Republican and in 2004 and you see that George Bush is a sure winner, but you really don't want Howard Dean to be president. You can go in and vote for John Kerry or somebody else to go and sway, try and sway the vote over on that camp. Yeah, so, there's really some gamesmanship to it. So, and the primary system was not thought of at all in the constitutional debates. Um, again, because there was no thought given to political parties, so they had didn't lay out a system for how political parties or how the delegate or the the candidates would be figured out. And even then, it's not so if you're running for president, you don't I mean, I think there is a federal application, 
But then you also have to get on the ballot in each individual state. You don't, you know, you don't apply at the federal government, meet some standard, and then all of a sudden you're on every ballot. You have to meet each state's ballot deadline. So like Bloomberg, while he's been having a bit of a surge, you know, that's been wholly astroturfed, but you know, that's a separate conversation. He wasn't even on the ballot on in Iowa and New Hampshire because he missed the deadline. Now, if it was like some federal process, then he would have to apply to the federal process by whatever deadline, and then he would be on in every state. But then, but then also, why for president do we have to go to each of all the states to go and decide? And it, this, the primary system of the United States seems to be such an on the fly backwards looking just kind of mishmash of policy that nobody's really got a firm grasp on and if anybody were to um create a system for primarying that nobody would arrive at this and i just feel like there needs to be uh like a higher conceptualization of what a primary process should be so this this all just seems like a mess and, you know, it seems like a mess because once again, we're reaching that polarization, you know, or like in the or let me see. So when Trump went through his primary, you know, he famously never got the full, you know, even a, a majority of the party to support him. He only got the barest of pluralities at like mm-hmm. high 30s percent. You know, if Bernie Sanders comes along and wins, there's a good chance that he may only have a slim plurality with other delegate delegates having uh, amassed a bunch of delegate or other nominees having amassed a slew of delegates. So (laughs) it just seems like this is not a great process. I mean, there were a whole number of years. Well, before like 1968, there was this thing called the conventions. The, they call it the convention system where, uh, you know, state and local uh, members of the party went and they voted and they or they sent delegates. And, you know, it was like the party coming together to figure out who they wanted to be their nominee. And it was contentious. And this is where the idea of smoke filled back rooms there was horse trading, all that kind of stuff. Then in 1968, I believe there were some uh, riots and, you know, screes that it's undemocratic, which back and forth. Famously, the, the Democratic Convention in 1968 in Chicago, there were massive riots, and that sort of caused the elites, the political elites, to concede to changes within the system. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there were uh, there there were arguments that oh this isn't democratic, but then there's also the question of should the way a party decides their their nominee truly be you know fully maximalistly democratic? But that's that's a separate question. Um, so then then we got this just weird system where you know the you know, they go and they, 
they campaign in different states and states will either vote for them or not, but not everybody's on the ballot of every state. And, you know, some most states, at least in the Republican system, states are winner take all. But then in the Democratic system, each state dishes out delegates proportionally. And I just do not think this is a great primarying system. So that was apparent after the Iowa caucus. Yeah. A couple of other big takeaways from Iowa were that Elizabeth Warren finished third, but it wasn't a strong third, not as strong as it could have been. And then the biggest surprise is that Joe Biden, who had been polling neck and neck with Sanders at the top, finished a distant fourth. He did not garner much support at all, which was really pretty shocking for me to see happen. I mean, I'm not heartbroken about it, but it it, it definitely was a surprise to me. Yeah, it's interesting because the Biden camp for like their strategy for a long time has been they've been like, oh, you know, we're not going to win Iowa or New Hampshire. The real deal is going to be South Carolina. But their their shtick wasn't we're not oh we're gonna have no support in iowa and new hampshire but south yeah. carolina is gonna really turn it around they were like oh we're gonna be competitive but not gonna win um so and just his support has just fallen i mean i guess maybe once the rubber actually met the road people weren't too enthused <laughs> yeah and i think that this is a good place to pivot into talking about Biden supported New Hampshire and New Hampshire more broadly because after a fourth place Iowa finish, which was considered a big disappointment, he actually only got fifth in New Hampshire. Yeah. Absolutely decimated. Um, Again, Warren was fourth and Amy Klobuchar actually had a fantastic showing in New Hampshire, pulling almost 20% of the vote and taking third. And then in New Hampshire, it was Buttigieg who finished second and Bernie won New Hampshire. Although, as Joe was saying, since states are inconsistent, even though Bernie won New Hampshire, the delegates awarded to he and Buttigieg were equal, the same. Yeah. And yeah, they were equal. Yeah, so right now Bernie Sanders is in a position where he won the popular vote in Iowa and won the popular vote in New Hampshire, but he trails Buttigieg in the overall delegate count for the eventual Democratic nominee. So it's um, it's a little bit frustrating, but um, that's the system. That's what it is. Yeah. <sighs> this is... Yeah, it's, it's just weird. It's... This, this is not a great system. And of course, because, well... Really, any system, you know, once there's a system in place, the kind of general populace is small C conservative about it. They're like, oh, well, this is the system. So this is what we do, because basically everybody who's alive now, they just know this system as the way for primarying. And and of course, based on like what we talked about earlier, the norm has been that like maybe the first four contests they're a little bit uh contentious but then after that most everybody drops out and then it's either like one or two candidates or all the support goes around one 
And what mm-hmm. we've seen here in New Hampshire is that while Andrew Yang and Michael Bennett dropped out of the race, and I think Deval Patrick, but I forget when the timeline on that was, that... Yeah, Pad, uh, Yang and Bennett dropped out the night of New Hampshire, and then Deval Patrick the next day. Yeah, And so then we are left with... <laughs> let me see. Vox always has a great visual... Who we've got eight candidates left. Is that what the, you're looking yeah. for? Eight, eight left. All right. So it's Bernard Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Joe Biden, Tulsi Gabbard. Um, Steyer and Bloomberg. Steyer and Bloomberg. Yep. And we didn't see any like, I mean, you we could quibble over the definition of major in regards to Andrew Yang, but none of the top contenders, none of the top four or even the top really like six dropped out six or eight, however you want to do it. So we are getting into a system where things are going to get more convoluted. Um, yeah, so I got to say uh, a little uh, note of sadness for the death of the Yang campaign. He was my third choice and really um, one of the only three that I would have felt really comfortable supporting. And I'm, I'm heartened to know that his profile-raising stance on UBI is still reverberating around in the public discourse. So yeah, that's good. He'll be around. He'll do something. Maybe. I mean, not even politically. He will do something. He's not going to go into a cave and live the rest of his life. Well, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) I I look at that option more fondly every day. Um, So after Iowa and New Hampshire, we're at a place where uh, there isn't quite a, a a clear, definitive path going forward. Um, so I know uh, Evan may retort against this, but on the currently the five thirty eight model for the primary, the primary forecast, they currently have a. A forecast of a 38% chance that no one wins a majority of the delegates, um, which is mm-hmm. the highest ranking percentage uh, or scenario happening with Sanders having a 36% chance of winning more than half, Biden a 14%. And th- yeah, then it just falls off. Bloomberg 7, Buttigieg 4, Warren 1, and then all the others 0.1. So that, you know, that doesn't mean there, there is also the plurality of delegates, which is, you know, the most out of everybody, but not over 50 percent. Sanders is the clear favorite. There is a they rake him as having a 52 percent chance of getting a plurality of delegates with Biden, the second only having a 22 percent. So. Yeah, it, it is showing good for Bernie at this point. But then again, there is still a lot of uncertainty in this race. 
there isn't a clear narrative yet. Yeah, Joe's correct that I don't love 538, but that's not really what's at issue right now. What's at issue is um, how, how we're thinking about the shape of the primary. And I like to think of it in a tier system. I think there's this, this race is kind of stratified into four tiers. There's the top tier, the front runner tier, and who resides here in my eyes are Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders. I think that the more moderate faction has coalesced in support of Buttigieg. And I think that he has a real shot. I think he will be in for an awakening in Nevada and South Carolina, but nonetheless, these really strong showings have given him a sense of legitimacy. And then Bernie, I mean, he is the, he's the progressive boy. He's, he's who we're going with. And then the second tier is who I'm going to call the wild cards. And on this tier, I've got Bloomberg and Klobuchar, because Bloomberg is spending hundreds of millions of dollars, literally hundreds of millions of dollars. This is a man who is a multi-billionaire and has decided this is what he's going for. And he has really boosted his national profile to the point where he's consistently polling third. He's up to double-digit support, passing much better candidates who have been in the race much longer how well this transfers once the votes actually start. And as Joe mentioned, he didn't qualify. He didn't get the uh, paperwork filed in time to be on any of the early states, but he's going to make his debut on Super Tuesday. And so until Super Tuesday, I don't think we really know how well that money and the national polling surge translates into electoral results. And then Amy Klobuchar is interesting because... I don't like her as a candidate, and I don't think she really offers anything to this race, but I was absolutely floored that she was able to pull almost 20% in New Hampshire, and I think that even though it's still not a very strong showing in the gestalt, I think that it's a rise and a surge that she could be able to capitalize on. Then my third tier is the candidates who need to wake up right now or they're not going to make it to Super Tuesday. And this is where I've got Biden, Warren, and Steyer. Because Joe Biden seems like he's on the ropes. Even though Joe's absolutely correct that he probably didn't figure he would win some of these early states, he still underperformed in a big way. And Elizabeth Warren, who you guys know I'm a lot higher on, also I think probably should have been getting a greater percentage of votes, even if she couldn't win. So I think that she's in danger of collapsing the progressive wing down to one candidate of Bernie Sanders. And then Steyer, I don't know, man, he's, he, he, what do you do with him? Yeah. I think that the, the only reason I don't bump him to the bottom tier is because I know he can self-finance for longer if he chooses yeah. to. I mean, with um, Warren, it seems... You know, there was a poll that came out a while back that um, asked hardcore supporters of each of the candidates whether they would vote for the Democratic nominee no matter what. And Sanders or Warren supporters, zero percent said that they would withhold their vote if you know Warren didn't get the nomination. 
So it, it kind of mm-hmm. seems like this effect is going into play with her where there are n- there are fewer people who are very strongly for her and just more a coalition of people who are trying to make this happen. So since her rise has like come and gone, it may, you know, people seem to be jumping ship and going with someone else where as Klobuchar, it seemed like her profile was on the rise. So there is a good chance that in New Hampshire, uh, you know, a good fair number of the Warren supporters who were more moderate went with Klobuchar because they saw it as really interesting. They saw it as a more practical choice than for Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, I guess that that's kind of a sad political reality is that if you're if the people who support you aren't fanatical enough to say it's Warren or bust, then you do maybe cool off a little bit more quickly than someone with a more rabid fan base. So I think that's a good insight. And I got that smart insight from 538. That's okay. That wasn't their stupid little model. You know, you have riffed on that one election night thing on a sample of one-on-one, one out of one, and I listen to their podcast. I read their articles. It's really good stuff, and I really believe you should give them another chance. Uh, I probably will, and then I won't be able to shut up and stop quoting them. They got good analysis. Nonetheless, um, Nate Silver is a false prophet. Anyway. Mm. (laughs) And he'll tell you that. (laughs) Anyway, the bottom tier, the fourth tier, is just Tulsi Gabbard, and it's the tier of just drop out. What are you doing? Yeah, there's there's nothing. And I actually I feel like I probably like Tulsi Gabbard more than 99% of people who are paying attention to this, but that doesn't mean that it makes sense for her to be here now. Yeah. So, uh so all of this is to say um the the very complexion of this race has been altered in a very quick amount of time. And um, let's talk about Bloomberg because I'm worried about Bloomberg. It's not good. Yeah, I think you probably have more. I haven't been keeping up on the the Bloombergist uh, rise. So what do you, what do you got to say? Well, he's just he's outspending all of the other candidates combined. I think uh, Robert Reich tweeted that in January he spent more on ads than Hillary Clinton spent in the entire 2016 election cycle. And in addition to just pouring gross amounts of money into advertisements, he is, like Joe is saying, trying to astroturf grassroots support, offering huge salaries to young people to serve as field directors for him, and sort of try to curry support with elaborate parties and swag bags that he can afford to do. And... As much as I would, I would love it for that to not mean anything. And it, you know, once the ballots come in, it might not. It's making an appreciable difference in the polling, where, as I mentioned, he's now up to double-digit support by really not doing a whole lot of anything other than spending money. He's not coming out with groundbreaking plans. He's not offering a persuasive vision of the future. 
Um, another thing that he's able to do with his money is essentially buy endorsements. He is making donations to local politicians, and then conveniently they are turning around and endorsing his campaign for president. I mean, it's it, it's a transparent bribe, transparent bribery that he is enacting all over the nation because he has literally billions of dollars of disposable money and something that uh, i think i've read somewhere is that um the main person who this is hurting is biden that some people have theorized that that's the reason why why biden is slipping so quickly is because support and a lot of support from african americans is being siphoned off by the bloomberg campaign so, uh, I mean, we don't really need to go into it here yet. I'm hoping just why Michael Bloomberg would be such a horrible, toxic candidate. I mean, uh, he's he's barely a Democrat, for one. Yeah. Not that the Democratic Party means anything to me personally, but he, you know, he has a lot of very unsavory conservative leanings. Um, he was the architect of stop and frisk. And he defended even he defended the pro, the program even after it was ruled unconstitutional for its racial bias. He still doubled down on it. Now, of course, he's walked it back. Um, now that it doesn't mean anything, and he's trying to pander. Um, reports are surfacing that he is a horrible sexist and sexual harasser. I think he has something like forty lawsuits for sexual harassment on record. Um, and I think it would be fundamentally dangerous to our democracy if the strategy of just blitz all facets of electoral politics with money and do nothing else, if, if, if that's proven to work, I mean, we <laughs> will probably never go back to a system of free and open elections without some sort of revolution. I mean, it's uh, on policy. He doesn't make sense on moral character. He doesn't make sense. And on a symbolic level of what he represents, he's absolutely toxic. And it is my deeply held hope that the polling rise is uh, a false red herring. And on super Tuesday, he will sort of be relegated back to the bottom tier of candidates. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is another example of, (laughs) this isn't someone like if, if parties had more control over the primary process, then Bloomberg would not be a thing. Like, sure. Like he was Republican for so long. He wouldn't be able to just go, Hey guys, what you got here? A little democratic primary. Oh, well, you know, I'll be coming, come and be part of that. Um, that's that, that just wouldn't happen. And it's, there are trade-offs, but yes, this yeah, there are, there are trade-offs. Be you know, the, the whole idea of a contested convention, you know, I, I, I don't have a solid plan yet of what I think an American primary system should be, but I, again, it's it's not this. Like, if there were an 
uh, you know, like a party decides primary. Let me see who would probably be in that. There's a good chance, like, I don't even know, you know, probably Warren Booker, maybe Klobuchar and maybe Julian Castro would be like nominees or contenders for the nomination in a like party decides model. But um, as we're seeing now, <laughs> that's just not the case. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that isn't what ha- what's happening. I go back and forth of whether uh, party people want Biden to be part of it or not, but um, it would it would be you know if it came to primarying and keeping with the system and it was like a party decide system, then it would look very different. Uh, but mm-hmm. we're we kind of have this wild west that's open to more extreme candidates um, and extreme whims of the people. Like, you know, Sanders, I mean, he has never been a Democrat. I mean, he identifies with Democratic causes, but he, you know, he wouldn't, if it was a more closed system, I mean, he probably wouldn't be part of the, the, uh, part of the primary. But then also, again, Michael Bloomberg wouldn't be part of it. You know, a lot of people like to hate on Buttigieg. Buttigieg probably wouldn't be part of it. He would probably have to move up at least another level before the party would be like, hey, Let's uh, let's do this. And so and then, yeah, Bloomberg, you know, wouldn't just be able to throw his money around um, because, you know, other countries, you know, they have primary nominating systems. But the, you know, the parties control the purse. So, you know, Biden or uh, Bloomberg wouldn't just be able to show up with all of his money. He would have to get support of the party to give them him money for his campaign in order to do it. And I don't think he would have a convincing case for it. So it just seems like this whole, this whole thing is a clusterfuck. Impeachment was a clusterfuck. The primary was a clusterfuck. We are at a time right now where it feels like if we make it out of this, we need to, we need to change things up (laughs) of some core, uh, democratic systems in the United States. Yeah. Because this is, this is not, this ain't great. This is (laughs) the every, and everything, the stakes are so damn high. Everything. It's just, we've, because of the inability for the government to do anything through polarization and partisanship and deadlock, then nothing happens. So each election matters more. And then we have this weird ass system for electing people where anybody can just kind of jump in the game. And if, you know, there's some, you know, small plurality of the people who is, um, wins out over everybody else, then they can win the thing. Um, so it's, it's not like what a primary system is, at least, you know, if it's a party primary system is supposed to find a candidate 
that the party can rally behind. And the way this system is working out is not necessarily choosing a candidate everybody can rally behind, but a system that is encouraging some pretty cutthroat competition in order to, um, you know, in favor of each other's candidate. And it doesn't seem to be uh, creating a whole lot of cohesion behind who will ever whoever will be the candidate and also the fact that it's two years long it's too long yeah we've been doing this so for over a year now i think that's sort of intuitive intuitively true that a shorter process would be better but can we tease this out a little bit what what do we gain from shortening the electoral process maybe we can just pay attention a little bit. You know, I mean, it seems to be the biggest part of having a shorter primary system is that everybody can just calm down for a while. We can have regular business of life and not have campaigning happening, you know, the whole damn time. I mean, this election campaign really started the day after Trump was elected when he established his 2020 election committee and uh, Andrew Yang at some point in I think 2017 started his campaign. Yeah. I believe it was February of 2017. Yeah. Very early. Yeah, he was the first to declare. And and there's also a chance that everybody wouldn't be able to just rip apart everybody alive. <laughs> Like to, I mean, maybe we would have a point where, you know, maybe not as much things surface about the people, you know, the candidate's character or uh, we don't, you know, give them as much room to make gaps or show their true colors. But then again, we, it, it wouldn't create as divided an electorate for one party. So people could be a, on a little bit better terms with everybody. So you got any more words to say, Evan? Um, just to kind of sum up, um, the, the field has, I think, sort of entrenched itself. It's make or break for a lot of these candidates. Iowa was really fucky, and we are really hitting the intense part right now yeah yep it's uh we're ramping up baby so well we were gonna do a final segment but i think we've we've gotten at least an hour and a half worth of material out of this so oh but we got to talk about bojack What about we do a bigger segment on BoJack next week and give a few people some more time to catch up? Okay, everyone, if you are someone who cares about spoilers for BoJack Horseman, in the last two weeks is the period of time when the final episodes have come out. We're eager to discuss it. We're not going to do it now over my protestations, and but we're going to do it next week, so... Yeah. This is a good time to catch up. Catch up this week so that you don't have to delay listening to next week's episode yeah. of BoJack. Yeah, we'll do it at the end next week. So no, you know, hey, 
wait around for a while. Spoilers, whatever. But we're going to talk about it next week. Watch out. Um, so anyway, uh, I think that concludes this week's podcast. We are back. Um, no more planned hiatuses. Um, at least as it currently stands. We are back on it. You can email us at podcast at adequately informed or sh- hit us up anywhere. I mean, please, most- if you are so inclined, recommend us to your friends. We're always hoping to add more people into the adequately informed community. Yeah. I think that the the more people that we have listening to this, the better uh, discussion that we can have. Yeah. Get some more viewpoints. Um, rate us on Apple Podcasts if you have not already. If you could write a review. Ooh, spooky. That's great. Thank you to those who have written reviews. We've got a couple reviews in. Yeah. And I think I have a pretty good idea of who wrote them. So thank you. Yeah. And so, and we'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. But anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been... Adequately informed.